You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The situation in Ukraine is so far and yet so close for those who have ties to families in Ukraine. We stopped by the park at Magic Island Sunday where the group Hawaii Stands with Ukraine sets up a table every weekend to provide support to anyone who needs it. There is music, art, and conversation in their native language. That's where we met with Valeria Kapos. She had her golden retriever Odessa in tow. Her dog is named after the port city where her family's from. And Valeria says here in Hawaii, folks come out to support each other during a stressful time worrying about their family and friends. Her family is safe for now. Hawaii people probably are the biggest support. I, I couldn't even imagine this much of a feedback, this much of a care from the local people, the ones that come over, um, bringing their aloha, bringing their support, just coming over to be with us. They find the time, they come, some some people come all the way from the North Shore to, to, to support us. They come with tears, they cry for our people. It's, it's breathtaking. As I was coming up here, I was worried about where you folks were going to be, and then I saw the Ukrainian flag. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, you know, you look and you see the people that have come out and there's kind of a, I guess, an ache because you just know that things are just not right there in Ukraine. That's right. I mean, we never try to be, you know, very catchy in the park. We always try to be out of people's way, you know, let them have their free time in the park and choose what they actually want to do, whether they want to come and support us. That's why we're all the way in the back of the park. There is no way we can just stay out of it, you know, and pretend like nothing's going on. It's very, for each of us, it's very hard now to, to run our lives as if nothing happens because that's not the way it is. And no one knows better than those who remain in Ukraine. Uh, we reached across uh, the globe on the Internet to an American uh, living in the port city of Nikolev in south- southern Ukraine. Bill Kiesling has visited Hawaii over the years. A childhood friend, Larry Bartley, lives in Kailua. They've kept up their friendship since grade school days in Muncie, Indiana. Kiesling is safe for now, but has lived with the sirens and the rockets since the start of the invasion. Ever since it first started, maybe a week after it first started, there would be rocket hits on the outskirts of town. I don't think they've ever flown any planes over to drop bombs, and I think the artillery is too far away. But they are using the missiles that, when they blow up, they blow out a little, a bunch of little bombs. I forget the name of those right now, but and there's been a lot of kids hurt because they make them look like toys. I just got another warning today on my phone about don't touch anything that looks suspicious. Just get away from it. Because now they're sending one over that when the rocket goes off, all these little bombs go out and they bury themselves. And they have ground sensors. And when they sense somebody walking, they dig them, they come up out of the ground and explode. And they're using these on civilians. There's only two countries in the world that does that. Russia is one of them. So essentially you're walking around in landmines. Well, if you're in an area where went, the closest to me is a block away about a week ago. There was a huge explosion. I went out on the back balcony and looked out. And then there were just, I don't know, 50 or 60 little explosions, which is what those little bombs do that come out of the big ones. But I think this one went off, up off the ground because when I surveyed the damage the next day, it's behind buildings, in front of buildings, for about a two-block two square area. Either windows broke on, that was the worst damage I saw. So, I, like I said, I saw no crater from a big bomb hitting. 
And some of the things they've hit here, just like I said, there's, there's no understanding Putin. They're bombing hospitals, schools. It's crazy. And I think he's crazy, too. How are you getting your information? I have a couple of sites, that uh, one from the uh, mayor's office here that's put out in English. And, of course, there used to be a lot of information, but the president here about two weeks ago made it against the law to post pictures and to give accurate descriptions of what happened because they don't want the Russians knowing what they hit, so they hit it again. And they, they've shut down all the webcams in town right after it started. What are the living conditions? I mean, do you have access to food and water and, and electricity? Well, the water went off two weeks ago. And, of course, the city published they were shutting the water down so they could put emergency generators on all the, the pumping stations. But the truth was the water comes from Kershon, which, is, again, is 20, 30 miles east of here, and Russia controls it. That's where they just had an election and uh, put in their own government. They have water trucks on corners all over town, but it's not drinking water. And what about food? Food has been okay. The price is obviously going up. I assume it's because it's still pretty much open from here to Odessa to the west, so they can you know get things in. As best you know, you know where are the Russian forces from your city? The Kershon, which is on another big river east of here is on a highway that comes right up from Crimea, which they took over years ago. Well, now, you know, they can send ships into there and unload new soldiers and equipment and bring it up. And that's what they're doing. They're reforming in Kherson. But the forces here retook Kherson several times. But uh, I think they finally give up on the neck because then you end up hurting your own people when you're shelling the enemy in a city. I'm sure, though, with all these weeks passing that... This is just wearing on everybody, you know, you you know, with the sounds and the, the sights. It is. I've always been the kind of person that I would not worry about something I had no control over. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't want to die. But, uh, the odds of hitting me are slim. I get water delivered. I always have here, drinking water. That's still available. They have trucks with tanks every three or four blocks are all day long where you can get water to wash dishes. And... But otherwise, it's just a waiting game, waiting to see what happens yep. next. And I, I, you know, ever since it started, I thought it's a miracle we have not lost the Internet. We lost power one time for 12 hours. Well, are there very many Americans in your city? I mean, I know two. One, I helped come over here a year after I got here. He lives about eight blocks north of me. And then another one who came from Boston and Oklahoma, he bought a, a country homer, they're called a dacha, and he has an apartment about three blocks from me. And I see him maybe once a week, once every two weeks, because he stays at his dacha now that it's warmer. So you gents are just going to stay put? Yep. I'm also a citizen liaison for the U.S. Embassy, which is not here right now, but if somebody needs help, they call me. I see. And, you know, yep. this is a holy time, a holy week, uh, you know, Easter Yep. That must be very hard. Most of them, they were told not to go to church because they'd had rumors that Russia was going to hit the churches. And, of course, here it's Ukrainian Orthodox or Russian Orthodox. Those are both offshoots of the Catholic Church. And the equivalent of a cardinal in Russia got on TV and was praising Putin for what he was doing. <laughs> so it would not exactly what I'd call a holy man. But a lot of people did go to church, and there was no bombing of the churches. Well, how close has the violence come to where you live? Do you live in an apartment building there in the city? 
Yeah, oh yeah, almost everybody here lives in apartments. There are some private homes, but this particular one is six floors high, and it's a block long. And like I say, one block away was the closest. That was the one I told you about a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. It's made lots of holes and lots of windows in the area, but nothing in our building. As far as the casualties in, for your for your city? There's been a, quite a few discs. They bombed the maternity hospital here. I don't think anybody died in that one, but they mm-hmm. put it out of service for a while. What would you like us to know about the situation there? The biggest thing that I've seen, on people send me clips from American TV and, and videos and stuff, is that it's way over-dramatized. There was reporters here from CNN reporting that the city was being destroyed. They were sitting out on the outskirts of town, showed a couple of houses that were blown up, but you could see behind it was open country. BBC was in my apartment today for an interview. Yeah, they weren't talking to me. There's a woman that helps me and she was here. Anything else you want to share? I mean, like I said, we've just come to connect with you because of uh, right. uh, Larry Bartley's uh, friendship mm-hmm. with you. I, I update about 30 people a day on what's going on. You know, I don't know that there's any reasoning with Mr. Putin. I believe a lot of the reports I'm reading that he's dying and he's just wanting to make a name for himself. But, uh, you know, Moldova is the next country west of here. And they own it. They, have, they, they, took, they took over a little strip of it about the same time they took the Crimea, Crimea here in 2014. Because I was here in 1999, met a girl from Siberia. She took a train for three days all the way across Russia, and we were married and lived in the States. But I wanted to go back to Crimea, but about when I was deciding where I was going to retire, that's when Russia took over the Crimea about two years before that. So I, I couldn't go plans. back there. Okay. <laughs> well, we okay. hope you stay safe. You bet. All right. Okay, you take care, Bill. Okay. Aloha. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Bill Kiesling, an American who retired in Ukraine six years ago. We caught up with him last week. He's a childhood friend of Kailua resident Larry Bartley, and he tells us he intends to stay put where he has put down roots, and he'll try to ride things out. He said while he can hear explosions in the distance, there are reports of very large explosions in the city of Odessa. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're curious about a troublesome species of algae that was introduced from the Philippines to Kaneohe Bay back in 1974 for scientific research. It's described as thick, warty, plastic-like, irregularly branching algae that grows in tumbleweed-like clumps. It can be yellow, green, or brown in color and grows on uh, reef flats or on a sand bed. It grows very fast, often doubling in size in 15 to 30 days. 
Unfortunately, no one realized how destructive the algae would be to our coral reefs. Its Latin name is Capophycus. We're looking for the common English name today. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareetHawaii.com. latest report about the state of early childhood education across the country has Hawaii leading in some areas and lagging in others. HBR's Casey Harlow is here to tell us about it. Good morning. Good morning. Yes. Uh, so last week, a uh, nationally recognized report, the State of Preschool Yearbook uh, from the National Institute for Early Education Research, or NEAR, uh, from Rutgers University, uh, was published last year, uh, last week, highlighting the 2020-2021 uh, school year. So for those keeping track, first full school year uh, under the COVID-19 pandemic, found that uh, Hawaii is a leader in child investment, investing more than $12,000 per child. That's nearly double what the national average is. So doing really great on that side. Also doing really great on the quality. Uh, they highlighted two, um, they have two uh, programs, one from the Executive Office on Early Learning and the other on uh, the Charter School Commission, uh, both received high marks. EOEL's program, 10 out of 10, which is one of only five other programs in the country to receive that benchmark. Uh, the Charter School, 9 out of 10. Uh, and basically, they're looking at the requirements of uh, that of quality. So that goes into the educational requirements for teachers, uh, staff-child ratios, and early learning and development standards and so efforts. So we're doing good in that department. Yeah, we're doing excellent. <laughs> we're doing great. Uh, I spoke with House Education Chair Justin Woodson. Uh, he disagrees a little bit about the uh, charter school program getting 9 out of 10. He says that, you know, they purposely look a little different, but the quality is still there, and they have, uh, and it may not, like, stack up with NEAR's benchmarks, but he still thinks it's a 10 out of 10, and, you know, no um, knock on the Charter School Commission's um, uh, benchmarks at all. Uh, but we are lagging in enrollment rates and also access. Uh, during the pandemic, uh, it was only 2% of children, four-year-olds, uh, that were enrolled in these programs. Uh, before the pro pandemic, it was only 4%, and we don't serve any three-year-olds in this public pre-K sector. So, uh, could do a little bit better. Uh, we are 44th out of 45 states surveyed, so uh, a lot of um, a lot of um, we can do a lot better on that one. Room for improvement. Uh, did also speak with uh, Woodson, and he uh, gave the, these two um, outlines of the big challenges that face expansion to improve access and enrollment in the state. The two largest barriers that we have in the state of Hawaii. One is a lack of teachers, and so we address that through a couple of acts. 
The second, which was not addressed until now, was the lack of fiscal space, uh, fiscal capacity. And so HB 2000 addresses that second concern. And so uh, HB 2000, uh, which did pass conference committee uh, last week, uh, made it through, will receive a floor vote from both the Senate and the House, basically allocates $200 million to the school uh, school authorities, um, the school facilities authority, excuse me, uh, to build or renovate uh, more preschools in the state. However, that first um, barrier, which is teacher pay, that is a big one. You can build all the preschools that you want, right? But if you don't have people to actually uh, teach or to man uh, those uh, schools and those preschools and those facilities, uh, it's kind of useless, right? Yeah, and, and the pay for a lot of those preschool teachers is very low. Uh, definitely. I have been speaking with uh, school heads. I have been. I have even talked to uh, several former early educators. They uh, Even before the pandemic, uh, their pay was really, really low, and they were leaving for jobs for, say, uh, anecdotally, Target or Starbucks, uh, places that would usually get minimum wage, which is kind of funny because the minimum wage bill is making its way through the state legislature. However, early educators are getting less than what uh, that minimum wage would be, $18 an hour. And there was a, a bill, uh, Senate Bill 2701, which would have provided a subsidy, which Woodson says uh, would have given insured uh, early educators $18 an hour. That did not make it, um, citing a reason for um, the Department of Human Services, which oversees the early education side of things. Uh, it was said that they were, see were receiving a federal grant, which had a larger pool of money and would go beyond a year subsidy. However, I find it a little odd that it came out in the conference committee, and that's why it didn't advance. Uh, you had a lot of um, committees leading up to this that it may have been an issue but it was still advanced but that be, that being the point where it kind of died that bill died just okay. seems very odd for me and so we just have a couple of days left in session hopefully that funding bill is going to get voted on pretty quick here yeah sometime this week uh not today uh and i have yet to hear back from some people of when hb 2000 will get a vote Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Casey. Thank you so much. We have been hearing from HRS Casey Harlow. Uh, he was talking about early uh, childhood education, and you can find his stories on whitepublicradio.org. Civil Beat has a scoop on the latest ridership numbers for rail that were released this weekend. Here to tell us about it is editor Chad Blair. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. Good Aloha Monday. Yes. And we have a story. Uh, Kevin Dayton uh, wrote this story this weekend as if he didn't have enough to do, right? Tracking all the stuff <laughs> at the lunch. Yeah, no, he really had a very long day, uh, days on Thursday and Friday. And even into Saturday, he was still writing legislative stories. You were just talking to Casey, obviously, about the ledge wrapping up. But this is a rail story, and Kevin did get the scoop. He happened to take a look at what was on the Heart webpage, Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transit Transportation, on Friday. And 
well, it, it, it's really kind of a, maybe I shouldn't say shock anymore, but the news was that the projection that 120, nearly 120,000 people would board the train each weekday, well, that figure has been cut back to about 84,000. That's nearly a drop of 30%. In other words, a drop of the number of people who would actually uh, use the rail Monday through Friday, not including the weekends. This was the projection for the longest time, the ridership projection. Uh, and it was expected to, to uh, be good in the year 2030 when rail, more or less, seems to be up and running. But that all changed with this idea that maybe we're going to stop it short, at least for now, rather than going the full 20 miles with the full 21 stations to Alamoana Center from East Kapolei, we're going to stop at at what's known as the Civic Center, Halekavila Street and South Street. So that's a that's a huge drop, uh, and certainly not a a feather in the cap of those who want to have rail completed all the way. Right, and that is the last really large employment center there you know, for government workers. It's you know there where the old Servco property is now. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. Just yeah, what the ridership will be because uh, the rail folks were keeping were playing very close to the chest about these numbers. Right, but they've got to get this recovery plan uh, to the FTA, the Federal Transit uh, Administration, uh, by the end of June. They are going to meet again on this plan, meeting Hart uh, on Friday. Kevin, I'm sure will be covering that briefing hearing as well. But you know that is a, a shortage. That's a stop of 1.25 miles before Alamoana. And some people are, you know, you were trying to pinpoint where it is. This helped me a lot. Kevin said that the Civic Center site, because nobody calls it the Civic Center, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what that is. It's it's about a block from Waterfront Plaza, which many people still call Restaurant Row, uh, about a block from Circuit Court. And you're right, it's, it's right there around a lot of employers. But boy, is that really going to be worth it? Because as we know, there's not enough money, at least for now, to get the project all the way to Alamoana Center. That is still the plan. That is something that Hart officials acknowledge they would like to do. The trick is they're going to have to either cut costs or they're going to have to find additional funding or I suppose a combination. The current figure is $9.93 billion. Uh, that's from East Kapolei to the Civic Center. That $9.9 billion includes financing costs. Yeah, and, you know, I know we did check with Roger Morton with uh, City mm. Transportation Services. He was with the bus previously, you know, about how they plan to uh, beef up the bus service, you know, from They're that right. civic center to make sure that the workers could get to other places, you know, or to get students to UH. Right, and and if that ever, you know, that, of course, is a long-term goal for many to get it up to the University of Hawaii at Manoa. But as Kevin points out in his article, if you're going to drop the, the ridership by almost a third, not quite, but almost a third, that means, obviously, you're going to be taking less cars off of the road. And that is largely the whole point of rail to serve as public transportation to ease up the congestion for anybody who lives out there on the west side and has to commute into town or vice versa. It's really a long haul. So this is a big change, a significant change. And we're all anxious to look at more details about the recovery plan uh, before it's sent to the FDA. The council has to weigh in. Uh, the public, <laughs> that means you and me, wants to see this. I should just point out, by the way, Catherine, I know we're running out of time, but 83% of the cost for rail, it's tourists and it's taxpayers. It's only 17% that's coming from the federal government. 
Yeah, and it was interesting that I heard discussions about, oh, going back to the lawmakers to ask to uh, extend <laughs> the excise tax. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good luck with that yeah. one or more TAT. But, you know, we are going to have to face some hard, or rather hard is going to have to face some hard decisions here. Yeah, all right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with our Reality Check. Look for Kevin Dayton's story at civilbeat.org. Springtime is here with all the flowers, pollen, allergens, and outdoor activities. That can mean a return to asthma symptoms as well. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an expert about the best way to avoid the sniffling and wheezing all year long. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Well, you're learning more about COVID variants every day. But did you know that Hawaii high schoolers are helping in the effort? Students from eight schools have been assisting the state health department, and now the gene sequencing program hopes to expand with a free workshop offered to educators next month. We talked to Yvonne Chan about Iolani School's Aina Informatics Network and the upcoming workshop. So they're providing like real information to the Department of Health. For some of these samples so it, it, yeah it's pretty incredible to to kind of give them the opportunity to to make a contribution and an impact so they were able to look at these genomes and look at the, the different variants mm-hmm. yeah covid variants so we're helping out the department of health with their genomic surveillance so detecting like omicron and the different variants that are coming into hawaii so these are samples that are from people, from swabs in Hawaii, but then they're um, actually processed up at UH. And then the, yeah, the DNA, what, what the students are actually sequencing is DNA, which is completely inert. So there's, there's no leftover virus particles at all. By the time the samples are, get to the school, it's completely safe. But it's work that needs to get done, and their students are helping to track this. Yeah. So the whole program came out of a need. So during the, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, there was really no variant sequencing at all. And we were on a call with the Department of Health and with Dr. Ed Desmond and Pamela O'Brien and then Dr. Marguerite Butler up at UH. And they really identified a need for students and for people that had the skills to do this type of sequencing and bioinformatics and realize that there aren't that many people out there. And so what we do at Iolani School is is teaching and students. And so, yeah, the idea came about to how can we increase the pipeline of STEM leaders in Hawaii? And then forming this relationship with the Department of Health and being able to, to help out in the COVID response was pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what an opportunity for learning. So our, our iNetformatics network in general, it's, it's based on getting genome science into high school classrooms. And it's really centered around collecting real authentic data that helps out the community. And so this is one of one project but we have several that um, 
that helps students or gives students opportunity to collect data and and contribute. And you're taking this to another level. You've got a workshop coming up, and you're trying to get educators from across the state involved. Yes, we have a workshop sponsored by the Hawaii Dental Service coming up where we're trying to increase the size of our network and invite teachers to come to Iolani School and learn these techniques so that they can deploy them in their classrooms as well. So if teachers are interested, if you're science teachers or or teachers just generally uh, out there who think that this might be helpful to their school, um, they need to sign up by May 6th. And it's from all islands across the state. So we provide airfare and accommodations for neighbor island participants. And then they get a stipend for attending all three days. And then if um, participants are also eligible for additional equipment and reagent support through the network. Yeah, the hope is to provide high school teachers in Hawaii with training, skills, equipment to, to do this type of work in their classrooms with their students. And is there a particular focus so the first day is all about sequencing, and we're actually going to do the COVID, COVID variant trackers project. And then the second day, we'll focus on we'll focus on GMO papaya. And so, yeah, it's just a, a, a real opportunity, though, for educators to get kind of a hands-on uh, intensive and then bring it back into the classroom to share with the students. Yes, and then they become part of our network, and, and so we can support teachers when they go back to their classrooms with equipment and reagents as well. So this initial network uh, that was set up, is it mainly with the private schools? It's all schools. It was actually funded originally by the Governor's Innovation Grant, and that helped us reach the neighbor islands. The INA Informatics Network started with a grant from the E.E. E. Ford Foundation, but this grant from Hawaii Dental Service really transformed our program. And we also get funding from the Public Schools of Hawaii Foundation. And is the the dental service, is there some dental component to that? We do have some independent. So once we equip teachers with kind of the skills and the equipment to to do genome science, there are, that opens the opportunity for their students to do independent research in, in dental science. So I've had some independent research students doing really interesting, um, like sequencing of bacteria from root canal samples and and things like that, yeah. And so the whole idea, though, is just to really encourage students to get into more of these STEM fields. Yeah, and to be kind of a a resource for biotechnology in Hawaii. Because, like, Hawaii, unlike many other places um, on the continent, like, they have big biotech companies that can kind of help sponsor these type of things and increase biotechnology in classrooms, but Hawaii doesn't have that. So we're trying to kind of fill that hole and provide some of the expertise and equipment to teachers here. And this workshop that's coming up, I mean, it's the first one that you've done um, that's open to, uh, you know, public school, charter school teachers? Yeah, this is our... Uh, for the INA Informatics Network, I mean, we do, we've do we done workshops on neighbor islands. We do smaller ones. But this one is, yeah, we're really trying to reach all teachers. How many slots do you have available? Do you, are you, have you set a limit? Yeah, we did set a limit of 30, and okay. we have 13 signed up as of this morning. Okay. All right. Yeah. And so they have another week uh, to get yeah. their applications in. All right. Okay. Well, we'll do what we can to uh, get the word out. Um, but yeah, it just sounds really interesting. And then are the kids working on uh, anything else so they can continue the genome thing on COVID? Yes, we're hoping to continue the, the COVID 
Variant Trackers Project Mm -hmm. and continue to involve students. With eight schools this year, we've we've sequenced 246 deactivated viral genomes. So it really makes a significant contribution. And so we're hoping to continue to support that. Yeah, when you get kids actually doing real science and and collecting real data, they're super excited about it. That was Elani Schools, Yvonne Chang, talking about genome sequencing work being done by high school students. Look for links to the free educator workshop on our website. Teachers need to sign up by the end of the week for the June session. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We hear about meteorites and research being done across the Asia-Pacific with astronomer Christopher Phillips and HBR's Dave Lawrence. Stargazer Time, our weekly look at what we have in the massive universe around us. Also, things we might try and spot in our dark island skies. As usual, we are thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in our eastern skies before dawn. The moon this week will be passing through its first quarter phase and will become a brighter presence in our skies towards week's end. And I understand this week you have a really cool story relating to our Asia-Pacific neighborhood about a team of researchers there and meteorites? Indeed. An international team led by scientists at Hokkaido University in Japan have published a study that indicates that the building blocks of life on Earth may well have come from meteorites that bombarded the planet during its formation. These building blocks are called nucleobases, and they make up DNA and RNA that is the basis for all life on Earth. And scientists have been studying meteorites for a very long time. Why is this a new find? Well, they have found some of these previously, but not a complete set. And one Mm. of the reasons why discovery may have been elusive in the past is that these nuclear bases are thought to degrade during the detection process, which can be destructive. The team altered their approach to use a non-destructive method to actually preserve these samples. And explain the whole part of after the thing falls to Earth, how life springs from this lifeless space rock, basically. Well, the process would have taken place over many millions of years, and the contents of these meteorites would got mixed up in the watery chemical soup of the early earth, which is where life is thought to originate from. And does this have anything to do with settling the the debate about whether life on earth really started with something from outer space? You would think so, but alas, this isn't the case. We are still not sure just how all these pieces of the evolutionary puzzle fit together. But NASA's OSIRIS-REx asteroid probe may help us understand a little better when it returns its asteroid samples to Earth next year. No doubt, astrobiologists everywhere are going to be chomping at the bit to find out what evolutionary treasures await us in those samples. Appreciate the heads up. It's Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. We will catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com.
Today on the Backyard Quiz, we considered an invasive species that was brought to Hawaii with the best of intentions, only to end up destroying fragile reef ecosystems. Known by the Latin name Capophycus, the warty branching algae grew at an incredibly fast rate, doubling its size in 15 to 30 days. The explosive growth deprived coral of sunlight, killing the reef and the marine life around it. It was especially prevalent in Kaneohe Bay. And for a while, the state was using a giant underwater vacuum cleaner called the Super Sucker to remove the invasive algae. The collected algae was then sorted, bagged, and delivered to local farmers to use as fertilizer on taro and sweet potato crops. We asked you for the name of this pest, and in its appropriate one, the name is smothering seaweed. That is the answer we were looking for. And Dave from Sand Island knew it because he works on a project growing sea urchins, which we now dispatch to eat that algae. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Some 800 cyclists took to Oahu's North Shore for the Haleiwa metric ride this past month. It was the first time in two years since the Hawaii Cycling League could stage such an event due to the pandemic restrictions. That was Lori McCartney at the start of the ride. She's led the organization through this challenging time. She says the next big event is in September, the Century Challenge, a major fundraiser for the group's advocacy and education programs. The Bicycling League is looking forward to welcoming visitors from Japan, which make up a big part of that ride across Oahu. We have not done a live event since the Century Ride in 2019. And we tried during the pandemic to put on I never wanted to call them virtual events because we were trying to provide support out there for people. But, you know, we really couldn't replicate or create anything like a large group ride. And that was hard for people not being able to bike together or have that feeling of extra fun and safety and, you know, just the excitement of an event. And then it was also very hard for us because HBL depends on these bike ride events as fundraisers. They are, in fact, our major fundraisers. <laughs> so, so over the two-year period that I was there, we didn't have any of that revenue coming in. And the revenue from the events goes to fund advocacy. And advocacy is all about how do we improve our roads? How do we improve, add multi-use paths? How do we improve laws to help make this a safer place for biking? Because safety is the main concern that people have about getting on a bike. Planning, you know, was just crazy. I mean, you know, with the whole concern uh, that we had, you know, with the lockdown on the international market, um, I think the last time we had you on the show, we you know, we were talking about the marathon and all these race events right. and, and just mm-hmm. the the concern that people had because, you know, uh, your organization also draws a lot of uh, travelers from Japan. Yes, we do. Historically, on our century ride, uh, we will have almost a thousand people uh, from Japan that will participate. And that comes with a lot of other benefit of 
more people in a ride, more international exposure, just more credibility, I guess, for the ride on a global basis. And then not being able to have the folks not being able to come here and participate with us, you know, it's sort of a downer. We're really excited about the Century Ride this year, 2022, on September 25th, uh, because we're going to see the return of the uh, Japanese visitors to our ride. We're already in discussion with the people, the tour operators that bring these folks in, and we want to deliver a really great experience for them when they come back. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think we're just starting a golden week, you know, and there's still Mm -hmm. lots of restrictions that need to be relaxed before we have the visitors return, you know, like we saw pre-pandemic. Yeah, we're hopeful too. And and they are too. Uh, The people organizing in Japan, when you think about it, this is the Century Ride also fits right into the um, shoulder season, just like Aloha Festival does. And it can bring people in uh, during a time when the tourism isn't generally very high. So they've suffered too, obviously. So they are have as much incentive as we do to try to make this work. But of course, we can't predict what will happen with COVID and restrictions and all of that. But we can promise a great event and do everything that we can to make it good and, and just assume and hope uh, that they'll be able to come. And if not, then we do like everybody's been doing is the pivot dance for the last couple of years of trying to figure out how to make things work as best as possible. You know, during the pandemic, we did see something unusual, and that was, you know, shutting down, you know, Waikiki to cars and having, you know, bicycles and and skateboards and 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 scooters uh, take over the streets, and and that was novel. But uh, I don't know, and any uh, chance that that's going to come back? Hawaii Bicycling League and the city. Actually, I went to the city and said, you know, this is a perfect opportunity for us to. We call it. We're not doing an event. We're just opening the street to people, basically. All you're doing is blocking it off. There's no other things that are happening. And the issue was, could you do it on Kalakaua? And it seemed like you certainly could because the hotels were running at very low occupancy, if any at all. And so organized the hotels and the neighborhood board and the shopping centers. And we all got together to see if we thought we could make this happen. And it was a great community effort. It was a great sort of collaboration between a lot of different people. And I really give a lot of kudos to the folks in Waikiki, the businesses and hotels there, uh, for allowing it because it was sort of a new thing. What HBL hoped was that we could demonstrate that if you make a straight street safe for people (laughs) and give them room to ride, you're going to see families, you're going to see people walking you're going to see all of this positivity out there of people enjoying the fresh air, enjoying the beautiful scenery, and not worrying about vehicles. And it was proven. I mean, it was amazing. I think I was very surprised. I think we did it for five week, uh, five Sundays. And talking to people that were coming as far away as Milani and Waianae, to come, and they would maybe, maybe they rented a beaky, and then their kids were on bikes, and there were people walking and skateboarding, and it was just incredible. And I believe we couldn't get a firm count, but it believe it seemed to be between four and five thousand people each time. And um, I think that just sort of demonstrates the desire uh, for people to do it. Now the trick is, can we do it again? I had hoped that what would happen was this would be a demonstration that would then say, let's move it around. You know, so let's do one in uh, Waikiki. Let's do the next one in Kapolei. Let's do one in Kailua. You know, let's try to sort of rotate them 
so that no neighborhood feels like, oh, it's all the time, uh, but that you get that reach into different, uh, different groups. It's more complicated and expensive than you might think because if there's residences and businesses impeding um, their uh, being able to get in and out is an inconvenience. And it's also expensive because you need to have cones and you should have some HPD uh, support there. So it's, um, it's something that, I, that we will continue to pursue and we'll see. I think it would be very positive. It would be great to hear from the community if they would like to see more of those things. That would certainly certainly go a long way. Well, I, I just know that the, the families that I talked to that came down, you know, wherever from Kailua uh, or like you said, uh, Mililani from central Oahu, you know, coming back to Waikiki and, and, uh, and hanging around. Uh, and generating revenue for the shops down there. Um, and so, yeah you, could, yeah, you could see that happening in in other neighborhoods. It's like, oh, well, let's, let's get to know Kapolei a little bit better or, or, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, go see Kailua from a different vantage point. Yeah, we definitely, and, you know, the idea of families biking is something that we don't see that much here because there's not very many places for families to bike together where they feel safe uh, with their children. And we get many, many calls into HBL uh, asking for locations. And we're sort of, you know, we only have a few to suggest. What a great way to help people be healthy and happy and, and explore the idea of using a bike by having these open open streets. It's an international, it happens that a lot of people will have probably encountered these in different places where they'll close down Sunday mornings. Um, in San Francisco, I know they do that. Uh, in other cities in the United States, you hear of cyclovias, you have cyclovias, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, that is this concept. So it's not a new concept anywhere in the world, but it's one that could make a whole lot of sense here. That was Lori McCartney, who just stepped down from the role as head of the Hawaii Bicycling League. She says the organization will continue to explore creating new safe bike paths with the latest efforts working to improve the Pearl Harbor and the North Shore bike trails. Travis Council takes over as the new executive director as of this month. McCarney, who launched the Biki Bike Program here on Oahu, is setting her sights on her next bike adventure, which is a bike ride from Paris to Istanbul later this year. Well, that's it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear from a Ukrainian citizen whose city was the first to be bombed by the Russians. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>